0: Hello, Vas here with the How To Academy podcast. Last week, I met the delightful Dennis Duncan, a literary scholar whose new book is the first ever complete history of the index. If that sounds trivial, then rest assured, he showed me that it is anything but. Enjoy the interview. Dennis, you are by trade a literary critic and translator, but your new book index, a history of the, is not exactly what we might expect from a lecturer in English. Why should we care about the history of the index? And how did you come to be interested in this delightful niche?
1: Okay, two good questions. Um, Why should we care? Well, you may not use books anymore, or you may only use novels, which don't often have indexes. We'll come to that. But I'm pretty sure you use a search engine. I'm pretty sure you've used a search engine already today. I'm pretty sure you use social media. You may be hashtag things that you put on your social media. I'm pretty sure you use the contacts on your phone in their alphabetical order. All of these are technologies that are driven by the index, the same invention that was uh, produced about 800 years ago by monks in Oxford and Paris. So There's a quote by a Google engineer called Matt Cutts who says, when you search Google, Google does not go off and search the web. You're actually searching Google's index of the web. Now, that crawling, as they call it, where Google goes off and explores every web page, happens in the background all the time. But then it pulls what it finds to its index tables. And when you type in anything into a search engine, you're using an index. So why should we care about indexes? Well, because they are the sort of fundamental structure of our our daily lives at the moment. When we search, you might call this the age of search. And that is because in the background we have this very old technology. The second question, uh, how did I come to write about it, is a good one. I did my doctorate about 10 years ago on a literary group called the Oulipo, mid 20th century French avant-garde group called the Oulipo, most famous for Georges Perec's novel La Disparition* that doesn't have the letter E. In English, it's translated as a void. It's the novel without the letter E. Anyway, this group, they're all about taking ideas from mathematics and seeing if they can be applied to produce interesting literary results. I was teaching at Birkbeck about seven or eight years ago. I was an English lecturer at Birkbeck, still thinking about the Oulipo. And I noticed that Several of their novels have indexes. Now, we know novels don't have indexes, but Perek's masterpiece, Life, a User's Manual, has an index, has two indexes, actually. Another novel by a member of the group, an American called Harry Matthews. The novel is called The Sinking of the Erdradec Stadium. That's got an index as well. And there's an Italian member of the group, very great writer called Italo Calvino, and he has a novel that has a table of contents. So I, I thought, that's funny. What is it about this group and their approach to narrative that leads them to break that rule, that leads them to write novels and put indexes in them. As I was thinking about that, I thought, I need to find out more about the history of the index. Where where can I go to find out when did novels stop having it? So what's the standard history of the index? And I asked around and everybody drew a blank and then it turned out there wasn't one. And then I thought, right, well, I've got a project on my hands. So the, the history of the index started out as a as a result of realising that uh, somebody needs to do the world a service Uh, and it really came from thinking about French avant-garde novels of the late 20th century in fact there's some of them in in the in the book itself I can't resist putting a bit of Italo Calvino into pretty much everything so he makes a few appearances in the history
0: In the present day, we fret about Google and social media making us stupid and distractible. And centuries ago, people were fretting about analogue indexes doing the very same thing. That's right. So there was a
1: very influential essay in 2008 by uh, an American journalist called Nicholas Carr called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And I think it taps into an anxiety that a lot of us have about our reading in the digital era that since all of our reading starts on the results page of a Google search, are we reading properly anymore? And I would take issue with that question. One way that I would answer it is by saying, actually, those anxieties are as old as the hills. Now, as I say, Google is a, a, a big index. People have been worrying about whether indexes mean that people won't read books properly for the last five hundred years, we find a real explosion of that uh, anxiety at the start of the eighteenth century. But you can find it further back. You can find Galileo saying it at the start of the seventeenth century. You can find Erasmus saying it in 1533. Erasmus writes a book in a long list, and he says, "I've had to write the book in this format because these days people only read the index." You know, it's a, it's a clever bit of sort of snark there. But in fact, that idea—okay, nobody reads properly anymore—you can trace back to Athens. You can trace back to Plato, who has a dialogue where his major character Socrates is going for a walk outside Athens with a young friend called Phaedrus. And Phaedrus has just got hold of a scroll that has the latest speech by Athens' greatest orator on it. And Phaedrus says, this is great, Socrates, I'll read this to you. And Socrates says, Ah, reading, writing, they're not the same as, as actually being sort of present when somebody's speaking. So it says writing is a bit of a disaster. Nobody pays attention to things anymore because everyone always thinks, well, I could come back to that later. I don't need to worry about it now. So that anxiety, nobody does reading properly anymore, goes as far back as reading itself, if you like. And so I'm sceptical about it. I I say, look, this is just a a sort of stick that one generation always uses to beat the next. The other thing that it doesn't really take account of when people say nobody reads properly anymore is "Well, what really is reading? When you read uh, a novel, it's quite different from when you read a restaurant menu. It's quite different from when you read a history book or a newspaper or a tweet or a street sign. All of these are reading, but they're all very different modes of attention and each of these types of reading has its own history and that history that evolution of how do we read a newspaper what type of attention do we bring to a newspaper article that's jostling for attention on the page with lots of other articles and advertisements what type of attention do we bring to the novel that's something that's bound up into how much leisure time people have how do we read a tweet well that's bound up again into to, into ideas of culture of leisure of technology so really we read in the ways that we read because we've evolved for these to be the ideal forms of reading for the moment. When you say nobody reads properly anymore, well, that's because conditions have changed. Uh, It overlooks the idea. It's an ahistorical complaint. It overlooks the idea that reading evolves to be perfect for the context in which we are reading.
0: So the story of the index begins in the classical world uh, with the papyrus. What then is an index? Well, that's a really good question. I think the best way to think of an index is
1: table of two columns now it won't necessarily be that but if we imagine a table of two columns the one on the left is where we look something up where we know how to find something and the one on the right points us off to the thing that we want so an index indicates where we can find something I'll come back to that table in a sec but we can imagine lots of aspects of our lives are governed by invisible indexes a man called Robert Collison talks of what he calls the living index. He's very kind of mid-20th century, but he says when a housewife organises the kitchen, she knows where the knives and forks are, and everybody who goes to that kitchen will know where the knives and forks are. They're using a living index. So essentially what he's saying is in the brains of that family, there is a list that goes spoons, drawn on the left, coffee, shelf above the cupboard. If you imagine that table, that's an index. The man who goes to work and knows that his keys, left pocket, change, right pocket, season ticket, Jacket pocket—that's an invisible index that's governing our lives. But I think the the most helpful way to picture that, if you like, is is to think of the two column table. Now, in order for that to be useful, the column on the left needs to have some ordering that we already know. Usually, this is alphabetical order. So, if you have a very very long index, but you know that the thing you're looking for is pencil you know, okay, well, P is just after halfway down, and you can find your way in that second column. And it's going to uh, point across to, uh, find your way in that first column, I'm so sorry. And it's going to point to something in the second column that will tell you where the pencils are in the universe that you don't know how it's organised. So it's very important that the column on the left has a recognisable order, usually alphabetical order, because the point of the index is to help you find
0: something in in the world, in the, in the thing that you don't know what the order is. But the concept of alphabetical order for an index was quite controversial, wasn't it? Well, that's right. The alphabetical order emerges in the classical period, emerges in
1: the Library of Alexandria. That's really the first instance of big data that's so big that it really needs an ordering system. It's the first time the letters of the alphabet are used to give order to something but that doesn't catch on massively through the Middle Ages. There's an idea that the the medieval mind prefers the idea that God has created structure in the world. God has decided that these categories, animal, mineral, vegetable, whatever it is, have value. And to replace that structure with something as arbitrary as, well, what does the word start with? What's the alphabetical order? Is somehow going against the the marvellous, Order of creation that we should be trying to discern in the world, so actually the, the the idea of alphabetical order in in the index when it comes along round about the turn of the thirteenth century is pretty revolutionary, pretty dangerous really to that that you can you can take the uh the true order of things in the world and just stick the alphabet in its place.
0: One of the heroes of this story is the incredible medieval polymath Robert Grosseteste. Can you tell us about him and his role in the creation of the modern index?
1: Yeah, he's pretty marvellous. I think of him as as a kind of uh, kind of parchment Google. He's born at the end of the twelfth century. And he's really active in the uh, the early part to the middle part of the 13th century. He becomes Bishop of Le- uh, of Lincoln, but I'm interested in him round about the year 1230. Now, the thing that you have to know about Robert Grostest is that he's read everything. He is just famous for being sort of completely capacious in his reading. In fact, Gross Test might not be his real surname. Grosstest from the French, uh, uh, Big Head. He's Robert Big Head. Not because he's arrogant, but because there's so much storage room. It could be a nickname because he's the guy who just knows everything. And Robert Grosstest starts to annotate the books that he reads. He's decided on the categories that he thinks are interesting to him, the categories of things that he might want to come back to. There's a lot of these. There's about 440 categories that God exists, the category of created things, the category of imagination, the category of the Trinity. And each time he encounters one of these ideas in his reading, I have to say he reads the Bible, he reads the church fathers, the scriptures, he reads classical philosophy, he reads Aristotle, he reads contemporary Arabic philosophers, But whenever he encounters one of these big ideas, he puts a note in the margin, a little glyph, uh, a nice little uh, um, icon, if you like, that means he can come back to it and go, oh, yeah, there's that bit about imagination. And then he has an index where he will copy down all of these references. I see that God exists. Well, that's in Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Well, he must exist in order to do that. So I'll put that in my index. But that... Idea will also have entries from all over the place, for, for, like I say, from, from pagan thought, from, uh, from classical thought, from the church fathers. So he compiles this vast index where, as long as you're interested in the same few hundred ideas as he is, he tells you where to find them pretty much across the whole of knowledge as it stands in, in, in the 1230s. It, it's the, it's the kind of parchment Google, if you like. So. Uh, you're absolutely right. He's one of my heroes in the book because of 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 just this sort of wild capaciousness. The only other person I think in the book who's like that is Sherlock Holmes, who at the end of the 19th century is, is a fictional character, but his superpower is also that he just has knowledge of everything. He knows how to dress if you go to the East End. He knows the different types of money or typefaces or so on. And he notably also keeps indexes. Lots of the Holmes stories feature Holmes Uh, sitting by the fireside, updating his indexes. So his superpower is the same as Robert Gross tests, that of keeping good indexes to
0: everything. And Benedict Cumberbatch's homes, of course, has his mind palace, which is basically the same thing. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. But also when when Benedict Cumberbatch thinks
1: in in Sherlock Holmes, the graphics on screen look like you know you have these sort of green digital things, like he's looking something up, like you know here's here's the workings of the big computer, and that's exactly right. The the uh, the underlying tables of of Holmes's mind are like the Google tables.
0: So far, we've been talking about the subject index, which is the kind that most of us will be familiar with. But there is another kind of index, which is very important in this story, which is called the concordance. And on at least one occasion, the concordance has almost led a man to the gallows. Can you tell us the story of John Marbeck? I certainly can. Now, I should just make the, the, the distinction. So a concordance is a word index. A concordance just
1: takes the words of a text and puts them in alphabetical order and tells you where to find them. So the first concordance, round about the same time as Robert Test, about 1230, but this time created in Paris, is a word index to the Bible. All of the words of the Bible with all of the places they appear. Now, what's really important about that is a word index is ideologically neutral, just takes the words and puts them in a different order. Whereas a subject index, something like Tests, does a little bit of interpretation. I said Grostes takes uh, um, the, the concept that God exists and he sees that in Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Now, it doesn't say God exists there, but Gross test does a little bit of interpretation. So a subject index has uh, sort of uh, um, mediation. The index's interpretation of what the text says is important there. Whereas a word index doesn't do that. It just gives you the words and, and where they appear. So these things were discovered or invented in parallel at the same time. Round about the year, no, not round about in the year 1543, towards the end of Henry VIII's reign, that there's significant religious paranoia still at the time after the Reformation. And in Windsor, in England, a man called John Marbeck gets arrested, gets picked up by the police who suspect that he's part of a heretical sect. They suspect that he's a Calvinist, part of a sect in Windsor. He's a chorister. He sings at uh, Saint George's Chapel in Windsor Castle, and he's not been well educated, but the police who pick him up think that he's a pawn in a bigger sect, and they really want him to to, to lead them to the the higher ups, maybe some aristocrats even. So he gets taken to Marshalsea Prison in London and interrogated, and essentially he's probably going to burn. Things aren't looking good at all for Marbek, and when his house. Is searched in Windsor by the authorities, they find that he's been compiling an index to the Bible. And in fact, he's got as far as the letter L. And this looks bad because the assumption is that this is a subject index. The assumption is that Marbeck, who's not well educated, is taking instruction from higher-ups in his Calvinist splinter group, who are telling him, index the Bible, suppress these ideas, make a big deal about these ideas. So the assumption is that this is a subject index, a Calvinist subject index to the Bible. Marbeck gets interrogated. He isn't able to give any names. And finally, he says, look, all I'm doing is I'm using a Latin concordance, a concordance to the Latin Bible. And I'm just using that to triangulate and do an English concordance latin concordances have been around for a while they're not heretical and they say yeah but you don't have good enough latin so we don't believe you he says look you know i've only got up to the letter l so bring me some quills some paper and my latin concordance and then set me a quiz set me some words from the second half of the alphabet and in the morning, you will find I've indexed them for you. I've used my concordance. I've basically just looked them up. I know enough Latin to be able to find a word in the English Bible, and then I'll copy down the locations. That's what I do. And they do. And he does. And in the morning, they have to admit that he's not producing a heretical subject index, that he really has enough to be able to just produce an English concordance, this neutral, non-ideological index. And Marbeck is released. The archbishop has to agree that actually, after all, they really haven't got the dirt on him. And he goes on to have a long career. He lives well into the Elizabethan period. He carries on being a musician for three or four decades, all on the basis that he's producing a word index, a concordance and not a subject index. And the important thing about that story, not, not just that, that, that it led to, to, to a man not being burned at the stake, but the important thing is it hinges on the idea that one type of index is mediated. The indexer, if you like, is present, making decisions in a subject index, but in a word index or in a concordance, they're not. When you jump through a PDF using Control-F, you're really doing what a concordance does. As long as you type in exactly the right string that you're looking for, you can find it. But Control-F can't interpret that document for you. I'll give you another example. Take the story of the prodigal son in the Bible. The most famous story in the Bible of forgiveness. So if you're looking through your Bible uh, with control F, who does that? But if you're you're looking through your Bible with control F, looking for the prodigal son, trouble is that story, that part of the Bible doesn't use the word forgiveness, and it doesn't use the word mercy, and it doesn't use the word prodigal. So good luck with that. What you need is somebody to tell you, ah, prodigal son, you're looking for, (laughs) I forget where it is, but you need the intervention of the human who's thinking oh you're looking for forgiveness maybe you'd be interested in this part here
0: so that's our difference between a subject index and a word index this episode of the podcast is sponsored by marquee tv marquee tv is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture with my subscription i've enjoyed watching some of the royal shakespeare company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code... How to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. The index really takes off following the invention of the Gutenberg Press and with it the page number.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, um, when all books are being copied by hand, so before the printing press, all books are copied by hand, and what that means is you and I might have the same book, say we have a history book, say we have a history book called the Polychronicon, could be any book, but let's take this one. You've got your copy, I've got my copy, and when I say copy, they literally have been copied out over months by somebody writing with a quill. The trouble is the text will be exactly the same, but the person who was copying those books doesn't stick to the same pagination your book might be a large format one whereas I've got a small book so what's on page four for you might be on page eight for me and that difference only grows as we go through the book so we're not on the same page when printing comes along though we are when printing comes along the page number gets stabilized across the edition if you've got a copy of the same print run as me I can write to you and say You'll love what's on page 50. And I know that your page 50 is the same as my page 50. We're we're on the same page, if you like. What that means for indexing is I can index a book now using page numbers as my locator. And I can know that that index is going to work for however many copies of the book I decide to print off. If I do a print run of 500 or 2000, that index will still work for all of them. Now, in the manuscript era, we go back before Gutenberg, that wasn't the case. If we do an index and we use page numbers, that index is only going to work for that book. So I found a, an index in a, in a book in the Library of St. John's College, Cambridge. It was this history book I was talking about called the Polychronicon. It was written in the middle of the 1300s. The copy in the library there was copied around about the 1380s. Now, the book originally had an index and so does the copy in St. John's Library, Cambridge. The trouble is the person who copied it, who signed his name at the bottom, a monk called John Lutton, gets to the end copying this vast history of the world. And then he starts copying out the index. And John Lutton doesn't really know what an index is. So he copies down all of the entries, but he also copies down all of the page numbers. And these don't work. So if you get the Polychronicon, St. John's College, Cambridge, and you try to use that index, For example, Alexander the Great visits the city of Tyre and says that's on page 66. Turn to page 66. Well, Alexander's already dead by this point. You have to flick through five or six pages back before you find, oh yeah, here he is at the city of Tyre. Because poor old John Lutton didn't realise that the index only works for... A single copy of the book. If you're going to copy out the index, John, you're going to have to redo the locator. So what you've got in that medieval index really is like one of those web pages where every link you click on goes 404, page not found. It's just a
0: series of parchment broken links, if you like. In the 18th century world of coffeehouse wits, indexes became an instrument for comedy and uh, for political propaganda. Yeah, that's right. So I think the the
1: turn of the 18th century is really the, marks the arrival of the attack index, what I'm going to call the attack index. So this, this is the satirical index. Usually, I mean, we take it on trust. I say the index is, is is mediated. The subject index is, the indexer has come between us and the text. And we have to take it on trust that they are on board. They're on the same team, if you like, as the text. But what if they're not? What if the index is actually deliberately setting out to mock or undermine the text that it's supposed to be serving. This idea really gets invented round about the start of the 18th century, and then we get a spate of these satirical or attack indexes. So I'll give you an example, 1705, and a Tory MP called William Bromley is running to be Speaker of the House of Commons. And a little while earlier, Bromley had published a book. He'd gone on the grand tour. He'd travelled round France and Italy, and he'd written it up, published a book, and then gone on to have a political career. Just before the election, just before the vote, three days before the vote, a book appeared. In fact, it was the same book. It was Bromley's Travelogue again. And the only difference was that this time it came with an index. And the index draws attention to all of the moments where Bromley's book looks a bit juvenile or a bit stupid, a little bit popish, maybe, maybe he's a little bit too sympathetic to foreigners, or maybe there's just bad grammar. All of these moments where Bromley's book is it, it does, doesn't quite make the cut or could be used to undermine Bromley's reputation are there in the index three days before the election. And everybody starts You know, making fun of Bromley. Bromley loses the election and Bromley figures out that the person who'd brought out this new edition of his book with an index was his political rival. Actually, the current Speaker of the House, a man called Robert Harley. So this is brilliant and Bromley is furious and he writes this wonderful kind of petulant little note going, I think this is a fine example of the Uh, very sarcastic, the fine practice of certain members of the House uh, and so on. He he absolutely realises that his ambitions have been thwarted by an attack index. And this really sort of kicks off a few sort of uh, uh, um, attacks in the other direction where Whig politicians have their books exhumed with satirical indexes undermining them as well. We even get round about the same time, about 10 years later, actually, a serious History very significant history of England by a man called Lawrence Etchard. and the index at the back of that, actually at the back of that, commissioned by its real publisher, is uh, secretly making fun of it so this isn't a performance this this is actually somebody slipping through an index to a real history book that takes exactly the opposite tone, so it's a weak index to a Tory history, so before you get. To what the historian has to say, you've already seen the indexer making fun, being sarcastic, undermining it, because no one's going to read a three volume history. But when you want to look up a particular moment, your jumping off point is one that's mocking the history that you're about to read. So in, in a way, sort of the, the index is the gatekeeper. Whoever controls your way into the book is going to control how you land when you, um, when you actually see the text.
0: At the beginning of your journey, you were fascinated by uses of the index in experimental fiction. And there are authors for whom the index is in itself a storytelling tool. Ballard, Wolfe and Nabokov all made remarkable use of this form. Can you tell us a bit about how they did that and also speak to why the index is not a conventional part of literary fiction? Well, thanks for that. Uh, um, Good question. I'll take the second part of that
1: first, if you don't mind, which is why novels tend not to have indexes. And that's to do with the way that we read novels. Novels are, are pretty much the one book that we read from the start through to the finish. I I think sometimes when we think about reading, we think of reading as a linear thing, but most of the time, that's not how we read books. It's not how we read a cookbook or an instruction manual. It's not how we read uh, a book of poetry. Novels are pretty much the only type of, of reading where we start on page one and we read through to the end, and we probably don't go back to it. We probably bring it to the charity shop or put it on our shelves, never to be looked at again. If you're reading in that way, you don't need an index. It's like if you have a long straight road with no turnings, you don't need any street signs. So the novelistic mode of reading is the one mode where we don't need to navigate a book. We don't have any sort of alternative points of entry. To use kind of computing language, we'd say that novels are not a kind of random access uh, type of text. Start at the beginning, read through to the end. The only exceptions, I suppose, are two types of thing. One is the novel that's an uber classic, the novel that's so famous that it's culturally significant. Because then we read a novel, maybe we read Jane Austen, and we go back to it. And we think, oh, I just want to read the bit where Emma goes to Box Hill, or I just want to check on the bit, or I just want to read to my children this particular moment. So Austen, Proust, Lord of the Rings, these uber classics do have indexes, people have decided that actually, it will benefit readers to know where they can find certain moments of these very famous texts, because you might want to access just a certain moment of these very famous texts. The other type of novel where you find an index is novels that are pretending to be something else. And that's where Virginia Woolf and uh, Vladimir Nabokov come in. So Woolf's Orlando, a novel that she published in 1927, is called Orlando, a biography. And it's a novel that pretends to be a biography And part of that pretense is that it has an index at the back. It's it's part of the the novel dressing itself up as another type of literature. And in fact, it was so successful that when it came out, Wolfe also ran the publishing house, the Hogarth Press. So Wolfe was both the writer and the publisher. And when Orlando came out, booksellers started shelving it on their biography shelves, shelving it with the nonfiction. You can read in Wolf's diaries, her getting quite worried and annoyed. She says, we're gonna lose money. No one's gonna be able to find my new novel in the bookshop. Basically, because she's done such a good job of writing a novel that pretends to be something else. *Pale Fire* by Nabokov is the same. *Pale Fire* is, is a novel that pretends to be a student edition of a poem. So it's got a long poem that takes up half the novel. It's half the novel that's, uh, uh, is, is taken up by a poem in rhyming couplets, and then the rest of the novel is footnotes and an index. And a lot of the plot of that novel happens in the footnotes. And the index. So you actually have to read these paratexts in order to get what's going on. In fact, if you don't look at the index, you won't really know who the sort of key protagonist is. We call them Easter eggs now, don't we? That, that, that there are actual sort of jokes and secrets that are buried in the index to this novel that's pretending that it's not a novel.
0: There were attempts in the 19th century to create universal indexes that summarised all of human knowledge. How did that go?
1: Well, that's exactly right. So the, what we have now, I, I keep coming back to, to the search engine, the, 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 the index of everything, the idea that, that we're all very comfortable with, that we can look anything up, we can find out anything we want to know because we have a search engine. The usefulness of this was apparent by the middle of the 19th century, that libraries were enormous brains that contained the vastness of human knowledge. The trouble is we didn't have a joined up way of using them. You need an index in order to be able to find where things were. So at a library convention, In 1877, the idea of the universal index was pitched. What people would need to do would be to take all of the book indexes that existed in individual books, feed them up into a kind of meta index subject by subject and then feed that up into a kind of universal index of everything that would be you were talking about the memory palace earlier this was going to be a room in an office in the strand that would be filled with index cards where you could find out every you could find out where to find out anything that you wanted to know it's it's, it's massively grand quixotic project the fact that we have it, thanks to the digital revolution, is is nothing short of miraculous. But it's always been the dream. I mean, I talked about Robert Test in the early 13th century doing this for knowledge. Then, the trouble is, by the 19th century, the amount of published material what what is meant by knowledge was so much vaster then. So it's it, it's a wonderfully ambitious project for the librarians of the world to produce the universal index on paper in a room. It didn't quite come to fruition. There's something similar in Belgium from the start of the 20th century, a, a big room called the Mundaneum, that was dispersed uh, by the Second World War. But it's just the mind boggles at the kind of valiant, glorious ambition of these people prior to the search engine thinking, that's what we
0: need. Let's do it. How are we going to do it? Brilliant. Are computers replacing human indexes? Hmm. Tricky question. They are a bit.
1: I don't think they should. In my book, we've got two indexes. I wanted to show how the current state of the art in computer indexing, using AI to produce a book index, is not that good. So it gets done and publishers do it, but what you get isn't very good. And if you want a really good indexer, you hire a member of the Society of Indexes. So in my book, we've got one produced by software that is interesting but terrible and would require an awful lot of actual legwork, human intervention to make it usable. And we've got one that was compiled from scratch by a woman called Paula Clark Bain, who's an expert professional indexer. And the difference between the two of them, I think, is really stark. What I suppose I would say is that the outlook for indexing, I suspect, as for for so many industries, for, for, for being a taxi driver for being a surgeon. The medium term to long term outlook is probably not good. The computers are coming for for all of our jobs, really, one way or another. What a good index does is it bears the mark of its indexes. So Paula has put so much of personality into my book index. She's a crossword setter. So it's got anagrams and cryptic games going through it. Now, I don't see AI replacing that anytime soon. So I think the future of indexing is probably something like hipster indexing, an artisanal thing that bears the mark of its creator, because at the moment, we do need real indexes. But I don't have any great optimism for any of our jobs in the long term future. What we'll have to do is the subjective artisanal
0: thing, because that's where people will always be able to add value, I think. What's your favourite index entry? Mine was uh, William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer. Hilarious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is the one that people told me about. When I was w- writing the book, the story that I heard most was, have you heard about Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley? William F. Buckley wrote a book in the late 60s called The Unmaking of a Mayor about his failed bid to become mayor of New York. And Norman Mailer is a character in it. And the two were sort of friends, but in a sort of squabbly alpha male kind of way. So when the book came out, Buckley sent a copy of it to Mailer, and at the back in the index, alongside Mailer, Norman, 321169, it says, Buckley's written in pen, and says, hi, sir. The idea being that he knows that his friend is is an egomaniac, is a narcissist. And the first thing that he's going to do is turn to the back and say, am I in it? And sure enough, he is. And Buckley's written, hi. What I love about that story is people keep telling it to me and it turns out that it's true. Mailer's library has been preserved and it's in an archive in in Austin, Texas. And sure enough, there, if you get Mailer's copy of The Unmaking of a Mayor, pull it out. And then in biro at the back, it says, hi, my favourite entry, I think, is from a, a book called Mumbo Jumbo by a political writer called Francis Ween that's full of good, snarky index entries. And this is about our, our, our own political uh, world uh, in the UK of, of the last 20 or 30 years. And there's a disgraced Tory MP that you might remember. Anyway, the entry goes, Aitken, Jonathan, admires risk takers, 59 goes to jail 16 <laughs> there's something about that compression the way that index syntax is is, is brief like the best wit
0: that I really appreciate Dennis it has been a pleasure having you on the how-to academy podcast thank you so much for having me it's been lovely to talk to you this week's guest was Dennis Duncan and the episode was produced by me Vass Christodoulou the editor was John Doughty. Dennis' book, Index, A History of the, is out now. We have an amazing lineup of live and online events this September, with guests including comedian Chappie Corsandi, Oxford mathematician Marcus DeSotoy, the author of Nudge, Richard Thaler, and pop superstar Sophie Ellis Baxter. Find them all at howtoacademy.com. See you next week, and thanks for listening.